Good afternoon, Covenant Hope Church. I hope you have been enjoying the beginnings of our tour through the book of Acts. It's an exciting book in the Bible. I hope you've been built up through that first sermon uh, in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. Well, we're moving on today to the last verses in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26 in chapter 1 of Acts. We do not like to wait. We're people that don't like to wait. We don't like waiting in a queue to check out at the store. We don't like waiting in traffic jams for sure. I don't even like waiting for my microwave popcorn to finish popping. We are not a people who are patient with waiting. But those are simply annoyances that we experience in our life. For many of us, Waiting can even be painful and excruciating. Some of us are waiting to conceive a child. Others of us are waiting for a spouse to perhaps come into our life. Others might be waiting, have been waiting for years for a family member to turn to Christ. Waiting can be simply an annoyance or waiting can be excruciating and agonizing, but we do not like waiting. But Scripture assures us that God is at work when we wait, when we wait in ways that He determines and He guides. We see the disciples of Jesus waiting well in our passage today. Between the ascension of Jesus, which just happened in the last few verses, 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 1, and the coming of the Holy Spirit that happens in chapter 2. But in these verses, they're waiting, but they're waiting well. Turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Follow along with me. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James and the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let therefore that there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is true. Your word has no errors. It communicates and accomplishes all that you intend for it to. You gave us your word as the Spirit spoke through men thousands of years ago, but you still speak through it today. Speak to us, Lord, today. Let us know you. Help us hear you in Scripture and help us act in obedience for your glory and your name's sake. In Christ's name, amen. Nine days of waiting. The nine days between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost must have seemed like an eternity to the apostles and the believers who were with them. The resurrected Jesus had told them to go and wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit who would empower them to be witnesses radiating out from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. Now, if we're not careful, we might skim through these verses thinking that they're not so important and that instead we should just hurry up and get to the exciting stuff that's in Acts chapter 2. But there's a reason Luke recorded what happened during those nine days of waiting. It's important because God was at work in the disciples behind closed doors. He was preparing them. And God's work of preparing His people, His church, is just as important as the mission that He prepares us for. A mission which we're unprepared for is a disaster waiting to happen. It's really a failed mission. What I want you to see in this passage is that Christ prepares His church through Spirit-led mission, through prayer, His Word, and His leaders. Let me say that again. Christ prepares His church through spirit -led, for Spirit-led mission through prayer, His Word, and his leaders. First, we see that he prepares his church for spirit-led mission through the believers' prayers. We can call it the believers' prayers. We see that in verses 12 through 14. And when I say believers' prayers, I mean their prayers together, corporate prayers, not just individual prayers. Of course, it's wonderful to pray individually. Jesus prayed individually. We should pray individually. But what defined this nine days of preparation for the apostles and all who were with them was prayer together. Verses 12 through 14 are really giving us the general setting for the more specific event that Luke wants to tell us about later in the passage. The apostles were on the mount called Olivet when Jesus gave them his final instructions and then he ascended into heaven. 
And from there they obeyed him and they travel about a kilometer back into Jerusalem and they make their way to what Luke tells us is the upper room where they were staying. We don't know if this is the same upper room where they ate the Last Supper with Jesus about seven weeks ago. Jesus appeared to them in various rooms during his resurrection appearances. And so perhaps it's one of those rooms that they met in. But it must have been a large room because in verse 15, we learned that there were eventually about 120 people gathering there. Immediately, Luke tells us who was in attendance. First, there's the list of apostles. And the list is very similar to Luke's list in chapter 6 of his gospel account when Jesus first chose the 12 with one big difference. Now there's only 11. Judas betrayed Jesus, and then he killed himself. And we learn at the end of verse 14 that the apostles are there with, he says, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Other than Jesus' family, these women were important disciples of Jesus. In chapter 8, the first few verses of Luke's gospel, he tells us about how important these women were to Jesus and his ministry. Let me read that to you. Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. These women financially backed the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. They were very important disciples of Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus oftentimes made the women the objects of praise for their faith and their trust in him. That happened throughout his ministry. Think of the Syrophoenician woman who has deep understanding of the parable that Jesus speaks to her. Think of the, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet at Simon the Pharisee's house and demonstrated great love for Jesus. Or think of the, the widow who gave more than all the rich people did when she gave what little that she had at the temple. All of these women and many more, Jesus praised and lifted up. They, he held them up as examples of disciples of his who were faithful. Maybe it doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it. Men are not more important than women to Jesus. Women are made in the image of God. They're of equal worth and value as men. Jesus died on the cross to save women from their sins. Jesus loves men and women. And people that love Jesus value women and their role in society and in the church. I wonder, do you value women? If you're a woman, do you understand that you are just as important to Jesus as any other man is? I don't know if you had that communicated to you and your family, but it's true. It's true because that's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus demonstrated. Take heart, take encouragement. Women are important to Jesus.
Now, the apostles thought so highly of these women and Jesus' brothers that they came together with them and they devoted themselves to prayer during those nine days of waiting. Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Now, he didn't command them to pray, but prayer was what they had seen their master do throughout his ministry. And so they instinctively joined together in unified, committed prayer. Apostles, Jesus' mother and brothers, along with the female disciples who had followed Jesus, they were devoted together in prayer, all in the same place. I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke's gospel account records Jesus repeatedly demonstrating his own commitment to prayer and teaching about prayer. You know, after Jesus taught the disciples what we call the Lord's Prayer, he closed out his teaching by saying, and this is in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And here they are, praying for the Holy Spirit to come. The apostles haven't even been baptized in the Spirit, and yet they've been changed by their encounters with the risen and ascended Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, <laughs> these apostles, they, they couldn't even stay awake to pray for a few hours while Jesus labored in anguished prayer, but now they are laboring in devoted prayer over the course of more than a week. Jesus changes people. Not many of us are familiar with the experience of devoted, unified prayer over the course of days. <laughs> but it's an invaluable discipline worth cultivating. Years ago, when I began student ministry, our team would set aside days at a time, sometimes a full week, and we would go to a retreat center for prayer and reflection. Mobile phones were not widely available yet, praise the Lord. The internet wasn't available at the retreat center, I'm thankful. And there was enforced silence in the hallways and the common areas. And when we'd first arrive, I always had these high hopes that I could begin to pray deeply immediately. I would unpack my suitcase and sit on the bed in my room and I would begin to try to pray, but I almost always ended up sleeping first. <laughs> In fact, I'd oftentimes sleep most of that first day we were there. I didn't even realize how much fatigue from work and from ministry I was coming into that retreat with. It was weighing on me, and sleep was, in fact, I think a gracious gift of the Lord to me on that first day, usually. But then around the second day, I could begin to pray. It was hard at first. My attention span for prayer was short, but over the hours and over the next few days, I found it easier and easier and easier to pray. It became more natural, more conversational between myself and the Lord, and even with other people as well. Oh, brothers and sisters, cultivating a prayer life that's deep and rich Connecting with our Father in heaven is oh so worth it and oh so difficult for us, particularly in our digitally connected world these days. You know, prayerful 
waiting before the Lord is almost never wasted time. Prayerful waiting before the Lord is almost never wasted time. And don't we, though, begin to think when we're praying that perhaps we're wasting time? Oh, I think it's a message from Satan. Of course, God works in response to our prayers. That's one of the things that we want to see happen when we pray. We want to see him answer our prayers, and he promises that he will. But equally as valuable as is how much God works in us through our praying. What he's doing inside of us, how he's shaping our hearts, what he's putting into our minds. What will it take for you to develop a deeper, more devoted prayer life to prepare you for what God has in store. It's harder and harder in this digitally connected world. Perhaps you need to go for prayer walks with someone else and without your phone. Perhaps a fast from Amazon Prime or Netflix is in order or from your local, your favorite TV station to provide more space in your heart and your mind for God to grow your ability to be devoted to prayer. If you do that, I want to warn you, you're going to feel initially like you don't know how to pray. But I encourage you, press on, brothers and sisters. Press in. Deep, devoted prayer, especially together, unified prayer, is oh so worth it. But what's most significant about their praying is that fact that they prayed together. It's one of the reasons that our church services pre-pandemic are filled with prayer. If you're not a Christian, you may not understand why we pray so much in our church services. It may seem boring to you, but you see, we know the Lord. We've been changed by Him and we love Him. We must speak with Him. And we pray that as you listen to our prayers, you'll learn about Him as well. The minutes that we spend in prayer in our Friday services, which were only twice a month, combined means that we were only spending a few hours a month in corporate prayer together as a church. Were you making those prayer meetings a priority? Are you willing to make our weekly Zoom prayer meetings that are happening now every week on Monday nights a priority? You know, it lasts only for an hour one hour in the week. What might the Lord do in and through Covenant Hope Church if we continued to grow in devoted prayer together? What might He do? What kind of preparation in our hearts and minds might the Lord want to accomplish in advance of perhaps a great move of His Spirit through us? The pastor and missionary A.T. Pearson said of revivals, there has never been a revival in any country that has not begun in united prayer, and no revival has ever continued beyond the duration of those prayer meetings. Prayer is important. Corporate, unified, in one accord, prayer for God's people, His church. Now, Luke doesn't record the particular content of their prayers, and yet we can see from verses 15 through 20 that their prayers must have focused on the Spirit's words. The Spirit's words, that's our second point this afternoon. 
the Spirit's words in verses 15 through 20. When I speak of the Spirit's words, of course, I'm speaking of Scripture. Here in verse 15, Luke begins to record for us one single important event that happened during that period of nine days of devoted prayer. Peter and the rest gathered there, must have been praying through and meditating on Scripture. And of course, this is all the more amazing given that they didn't have Bibles in their back pocket. They didn't have Bibles on their phones. They would have only known the Scriptures because of the liturgies that they would have memorized when they were at the temple or perhaps in the synagogues. But they were meditating on the Scripture as they prayed. Because as Peter prayed, the Lord gave him understanding of what the Spirit was saying through the writings of David's Psalms. In verse 15, Peter stands up and he addresses everyone who had gathered in that upper room. It's 120 people by now. And he addresses them all. When, he, when it says he stood up among the brothers, that word brothers can refer to men and women depending on its context in the scripture. And so it's a mixed crowd, men and women, and he's addressing all of them. Look with me there at the first thing that Peter says in verse 15 through 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Peter had obviously been learning to read his Bible which is our Old Testament, like Jesus had taught him to read it. When Jesus appeared to the apostles after his resurrection, he told them over and over and over again that the scriptures had to be fulfilled about himself. In other words, the events in his life and his death and his resurrection had to be fulfilled. They had to come true just as the scriptures foretold it. And he taught that all the scriptures were ultimately about himself. He taught them that the Old Testament is a grand story that leads up to and predicts Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and even the things that were to come after it as well. All 39 books of the Old Testament point toward and are intended to prepare the way for Jesus and all that God would accomplish through his work. Because Judas's betrayal of Jesus led to his arrest, he was also prophesied about in the Scriptures. Now, Peter knows that all Scripture is breathed out by God as 2 Timothy 3.16, which would be written later, says, God the Holy Spirit inspired human authors to write down Scripture. And therefore, Scripture essentially has two authors. The divine author, the Holy Spirit, and the human author, like, for instance, King David in the case of most of the Psalms. That's why we call David's writings, or we call Moses' writings, or we call Solomon's writings God's Word, even though they wrote them down. And here it's important to notice that even though the Holy Spirit will come upon the disciples in a powerful way in the very next chapter, the Holy Spirit has been active and working in the world since the first day of creation. The Holy Spirit is there on page one of the Bible. 
The day of Pentecost isn't the Holy Spirit's first work in the world. The Spirit was at work in creation. The Spirit was at work in the lives of the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Spirit was at work in Moses and in the people of Israel as Moses led them out of slavery. The Spirit was working in the kings of Israel and the prophets who spoke to them. Of course we know that the Spirit was working in the ministry of Jesus. And even in these nine days of waiting, the Spirit was at work. All three members of the Trinity have always been at work in the world. Always. But they work in different ways at different times. And next week, we see a major shift happen in all of history in the way that the Spirit works in the world. But when we want to listen to the Spirit, the place we go is where the Spirit has already spoken. We go to Scripture. With Scripture, Holy Spirit can give us understanding of how to apply and obey it in our particular situations and our circumstances, even 2,000 years or even more after it had been written down. Do you want to know what the Spirit is saying? Immerse yourself in Scripture and learn from the apostles. They sat at the feet of the one who wrote it through the Spirit. It's so important that you and I learn to read the Old Testament and understand how it points to Christ. The Old Testament was originally Jewish scripture, but now the Messiah has come. The Christ has arrived. And so the Old Testament is Christian scripture to us. I hope that over time you're learning to read the Old Testament as pointing to Christ just by hearing the Old Testament preached and having, hearing the gospel connections that are proclaimed from each passage that's there. If Christ isn't proclaimed in a sermon on the Old Testament, then we've missed the primary point that the apostles knew was so crucial to understand. Oh, brothers and sisters, learn to see Christ and His gospel in the Old Testament. Learn from the sermons. Learn from good books. Learn it. Learn it like the apostles. Now we've got to skip over Luke's commentary on Judas in verses 18 and 19 for just a moment and look on there to verses 20 and 21 where Peter tells us what part of Scripture the Spirit has given him insight into. The first is Psalm 69, verse 25. Now that psalm is the second most often quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. And also, Peter remembers Psalm 109, verse 8. Now both psalms were written by King David, and they're about opposition that he was facing from people who were close to him, who had been loved by him and taken care of by him, but they're out to betray him. King David experienced these kinds of intimate betrayals in his life. But Peter understands that the betrayals which David went through were really predictions of what Jesus would experience when Judas, someone handpicked by Jesus, betrayed by him into the hands of the Jewish leaders, he understands that the betrayals of David foretell the betrayal of Jesus. 
The first verse describes how Judas's place as an apostle became vacant as he betrayed Jesus. That verse reads, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And Peter understood the second verse to call for someone to take Judas's place as a twelfth apostle. It says, Let another take his office. Peter's been praying with the others. He's been meditating on Old Testament Scripture, perhaps even the specific Psalms that Jesus had taught them from. The Lord is preparing Peter and those with him through the Spirit's words in Scripture, quoting from the Old Testament and explaining how they're fulfilled in Christ will then become a pattern that we're going to see over and over and over again in the speeches in the book of Acts. And we're going to see it in the next chapter. But this is the first. This is the first time. It's preparation for the bold and powerful witnesses that these disciples will become just a few days from now. Now we can't press on without considering Luke's gruesome commentary about what had happened to Judas. Back in verses 18 and 19, Luke tells us something. It's in parentheses there in your Bible because it's Luke's commentary. And he tells us that Judas acquired a field with the silver that he had earned from the Jews for betraying Jesus. We know it was silver from other gospel accounts. Peter says it was a reward for his wickedness. But the real reward that Judas received was that he fell headlong into the field and his body burst open. As a result, the field became known as a field of blood. Evidently, it was known throughout all of Jerusalem. Now, if you took the time to go back and read Matthew's account of what happened to Judas, you might be forgiven for being a little confused. Matthew tells us that Judas hanged himself and that Judas returned the silver to the priests and they bought a field with the money. From time to time, when we're reading the accounts of Jesus' life and what happened afterwards, we will find parallel accounts that are recorded in two or maybe three different places in the Scripture. And they seem to contradict one another sometimes. But be assured, brothers and sisters, be assured that there are ways to explain the different ways that events are sometimes reported. And that's true for us as well, right? If you and I attend a party together and then a reporter asks us separately to tell them all about it and describe it, we might use different words and our accounts might tell about different activities that happened during the party. And it could sound on the surface of things like we had attended two different parties, while all the time the accounts fit together and tell the truth. Now, it's quite possible that Judas did hang himself and that his body decomposed over a few days and then it burst open when its body, his body slipped out of the noose that he was hanging from. And it's also possible that the priests bought the field in Judas's name. You know, sometimes people bring up these so-called contradictions who they either want to give Christianity a bad name, or they've been taught simply that the Bible is full of errors. Maybe they're genuine questions that they pose to you. Don't let them shake your faith in God's Word. There are good explanations for how these issues can be resolved. 
God's word is all true. God's word does not have any errors. It's God's word and he's perfect. And so is his word. The account of Judas's death is interesting, but don't miss one of the most important things that scripture here is teaching us. There is a horrible cost to rebelling against God and Jesus Christ. Even though Judas had been with Jesus from the very beginning, he'd seen the miracles. He'd been chosen by Jesus. He'd had his feet washed by the Savior at the Last Supper. Despite all of this, he turned away from Christ, and the result was judgment. Some understand his suicide as what would have brought judgment on him, what would have sent him to hell. But that's not correct. Suicide, though a sin, is forgivable. It's, it's like every sin. In fact, many people who commit suicide are in the midst of depression. They're struggling. And yes, it's wrong to take your own life. God is the one who's given it to you. It's His prerogative to take it. But make no mistake, Judas was judged for rejecting Christ not for the way he died. Judas's judgment is a warning that the consequences of rejecting Christ are horrible. They're far more horrible than his gruesome death. You see, Judas will spend eternity in constant anguish and torment. He will experience the wrath of God forever. If you're not a Christian, I urge you, trust in Christ. Don't turn away from him. Heed the warning that Judas' life teaches us to reject Christ, to turn down his offer of forgiveness, which is made possible by his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's to betray him. That's to leave his offer on the table, so to speak. It's to rebel against God and Christ himself. It's to reject his love. The gospel is the good news that Christ has come to rebels like us, people who were born into sin, who by nature do things in opposition to God, who live for ourselves, and yet that loving God has made a way for our sins to be washed away, for rebels to be brought into his family, literally, and adopted as sons and daughters through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what's on offer in the life of Jesus. Oh, I plead with you, don't reject Christ. Don't reject him. The cost will be the high, the highest you've ever paid. Now we've seen how Christ was preparing his church through the believer's prayers and the Spirit's words. And now in verses 21 through 26, we see Christ preparing his church for mission through the Lord's leaders. That's our third point this afternoon, the Lord's leaders. The first way we see the Lord using his leaders, the leaders that he's given the church, is in Peter himself. Peter has stepped up and addressed the brothers and sisters with his insight from the scriptures. This is the Peter, the Peter who denied Christ, who had pledged, I'll die for you, Jesus, and yet had denied even knowing Jesus three times, 
But Jesus restored Peter. Peter had repented. And Peter's conclusion here is to put forward that they must together obey God's word. He's leading them to act at Scripture's leading. Someone must be chosen to take Judas's place of apostleship, he puts forward. And the criteria was clear to Peter. It must be a man who had been with them from Jesus' baptism until his ascension. He had to have been taught by Jesus for the entire duration of Jesus' ministry. And not least of all, he had to be a witness of the risen Jesus. He had to have seen Jesus after the resurrection. This is what it took to be one of the 12 original apostles. And so we can safely conclude that the office of apostle in the church has ended in our time. There's no one who meets those criteria anymore. Of course, there are missionaries and evangelists, perhaps pastors, even lay people who do apostle-like things, but there are no more apostles. Those roles were unique that, to that time. Do you see how the emphasis on the apostles' qualifications is on the fact that they were taught directly by Jesus and they were eyewitnesses? It means that one of the foundations of our faith is that our faith is based on truth. It's based on history. Our testimony of Christ is not primarily how becoming a Christian has met our needs, although God meets many of our needs, our most important needs. Our testimony about Christ should echo the apostles' testimony. Jesus really did walk the earth 2,000 years ago. He really did amazing miracles that no one had seen before. He really taught that he had been sent from heaven by God. He really did die on the cross. And there's no doubt that he was buried. And perhaps most importantly, it is rock-solid truth that Jesus rose from the dead. He was witnessed by hundreds, and especially the twelve. Our faith is based on historical facts. Being a witness to the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it was crucial for the apostles, and it should give us great confidence in the truth of Christianity. Let me ask you a question. When you tell someone about your faith in Jesus, do you talk about Jesus? The 120 gathered, put forward two men. They essentially nominated them. Evidently, only two men satisfied the requirements, Joseph and Matthias. Those men were put forward by the group, but the 120 there understand that it's Christ who originally chose the 12, and Christ is still alive. He's on the throne. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and He must be the one to choose and replace Judas. They correctly understand that Christ is the head of his church. He is the leader still, even though he's ascended. And so they pray to him. Look with me at verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship. 
Jesus was absent in the body, but he was present with them in the spirit. He was and is the leader of the church. Jesus is the head of every church that preaches a true gospel. Jesus is the leader of Covenant Hope Church. He, we have elders and deacons, but Christ is who is leading us. And the measure of my leadership as a pastor is how well I follow and listen to Christ as I lead the church according to His wishes and His commands. When we choose elders as a church, or when we appoint deacons, when we make decisions together about bringing into or putting people out of membership, we want to be led by the living King Jesus. He knows our hearts, and the decisions that we make are ultimately His to make through us. Let's pray together that we make decisions as a church listening carefully to Jesus and not ourselves. Let's pray and work together in one accord, as it says here, so that we're accomplishing His mission in the world and not our own agendas. We have to set aside our own desires and wishes for covenant hope and make sure that we're asking Jesus to lead us. Earlier in the passage, we saw the disciples praying as they waited. They prayed while they were waiting, and they prayed while they were working to choose another apostle. And now we see them praying as they're acting here in verse 26. They've prayed and they take action. It tells us that the disciples gathered together and cast lots, and Matthias was chosen. It was crucial that a 12th apostle was selected and installed. Jesus chose 12 apostles to represent the new Israel. Israel was the nation that had been founded by the 12 sons of Jacob, and now Jesus is God's chosen man to restore and reform Israel. The new people of God was what Jesus was establishing and we call it the church. It would include people from ethnic Israel, but oh, so many more. And scripture commanded the position of the 12th apostle be filled again before the Father would send the Spirit. Casting lots was an Old Testament practice for making decisions, and God approved it. It's mentioned in His law. It's mentioned in Leviticus and Numbers and Proverbs and elsewhere. But it's not a pattern that we should follow. Why? Because we don't see the disciples making decisions like this again in the pages of the New Testament. And because of what happens in the next chapter of Acts. You see, everything in the book of Acts is not necessarily something that we should do ourselves. And we'll wrestle with that idea as we move through the rest of the book. We'll have to decide what's simply descriptive of what happened in their time and what should be prescriptive for what we should do. But what happened in the next chapter of Acts, of course, would change everything. The disciples will be baptized in the Spirit. 
At the end of this period of nine days of waiting, a new era in history began. The Spirit came with power and it sealed the believers, men and women, young and old, Jews and eventually Gentiles. No matter where people were in the world, if someone repented and trusted in Christ, they were baptized in the Spirit. And so then they individually could be led by the Spirit. They could make decisions. They didn't have to cast lots. If you're like me, anticipating the gift of the Spirit in the next chapter, it, it, it makes me want to press on. But we have to wait. And so did the disciples of Jesus. The nine days that these verses describe, they were not wasted days. God was working in their obedient waiting. They were being prepared by the believers' prayers and by the Spirit's words. They were gaining Spirit-led insight through the Spirit's words in Scripture, and the Lord's leaders were being put into place and stepping up. All these means of preparation would be crucial for the bold and faithful witness of the church. They were then, and they are now too. Beloved, oh beloved, we must look to Christ. We must wait on Him. And let Him do His work of preparing us, His church, to be bold and faithful witnesses to Christ, just like them. Let's go to Him in prayer now. O oh, Heavenly Father, O oh, Lord Jesus, we praise You that You sent the Spirit that we can be led by Him, that we can be united in prayer and allow You to work in us and then work as You hear our prayers for You to work in the world, that we can soak ourselves in the Scriptures and hear the Spirit speak to us and that You are raising up Your leaders for Your church in order for us all total to be bold and faithful witnesses to Your Son Jesus and the gospel that he so boldly proclaimed. Oh Lord, we pray that you would make it so in our lives and in this church. In Christ's name, amen.